Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, history heroes, and welcome back to school. As though, well, I guess that's maybe not for everyone, but for a lot of us, whether it's ourselves or our kids, this week meant it's officially fall in that people are back in school. School's back from summer. There you go. <laughs> I mean, my summer was a week, but you yeah. know. So I hope everyone is doing okay and not too crazy. In fact, some of you might be more okay now that your kids aren't around. I'm actually uh, slightly devastated. A friend of mine posted her kids like back to school pictures and one of her daughters is like going to kindergarten. And I'm like, oh my God, I remember when you were in your mommy's tummy. I feel old. That's not what stressed me out though. It was, she was dressed like so cute and stylish. And it was something that was like, it was totally age appropriate for her. But I'm like, I could wear that and like be cute. And I'm like, how does this five-year-old have a better dress game than I do? (laughs) No, one time I was walking through Costco and there was this really cute like dress hanging up and I was like oh that's cute yeah it was for like tweens and I'm like god damn it I I was at Target yesterday I had the same exact experience I kind of wandered towards the baby stuff because one of Jared's nieces is gonna have her first birthday like a month or so yeah and I'm like I should probably start brainstorming of like what I'm gonna get her and across from the baby stuff was all like the tween stuff I didn't realize that so I'm like looking at the Mm -hmm. I'm like oh my god that's really cute oh wait that mannequin is three feet tall because (laughs) it's a child god damn it. Right. So back on track. <laughs> what I was going to say, those of you with kids can turn us up a little louder now. If you're, you know, at home without them, you know, pour yourself an extra glass of wine because this is Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime best friends drink a lot of wine and talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of. I'm Kelly. I'm Emily. And Herstory Fuck yeah, gonna swear because there's no kids around. Fuck yeah. <laughs> they said a bad word. They said a bad word. Damn. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, I did it again. Yep. Fuck. Shit. <laughs> Fuck. God. Cocksucker. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> We're back. Yep. That was that was a little tantrum that didn't need to happen, but here we are. It did. That's it okay. Did I uh, I have a particularly heavy story, so I'm like getting all my giggles and my crazy energy out. I've literally been having nightmares. This is the first story I've covered where like Emily's it's invaded my dreams. Nightmares. Yeah. Great. No, you will have nightmares. But first, the back of this wine bottle is perfect. Okay. Um, okay, you ready? So yeah, we're well, today we're drinking us. California Moscato from Middle Sister. It says sweet and sassy. Which is perfect because Kelly is all of those things. She's a California Moscato who's a middle sister who's sweet and sassy. I am not a middle sister. I'm the youngest. Oh, shit. That's right. Why do I think you're the middle sister? I've almost bought that wine literally because I'm like, because Kelly's the middle sister. I've almost, usually, I think I only bought it because it said sweet and sassy because I'm like, I'm not a middle sister. I shouldn't buy it. I think it's because I always think you're older than that. I don't know why. Yeah. It's just because you're more mature. Yeah. I was just saying, (laughs) my life a little more together. Love you, Matt, if you listen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it says, after a long, hard day of being fabulous, I like to relax with a glass of wine, but I don't want it to bite me back. Isn't there enough drama in this world? That's why this wine is my new best wine friend. With a touch of natural sweetness, it's smooth and refreshing and so easy to love. Moscato, always stay as sweet as you are. I'll handle the sassy part. Oh, I love that. And I love that she's like, let's encourage this wine to just be who it is. It can just be sweet and then I'll be sassy. I also like that it says like middle sister wines we give back to causes women care about. 
Aw, and you said you got this bottle maybe when uh, the election was going on? I must have, because there's a big sticker that says, go vote. And then there's a woman on the front that says, the only thing I plan to exercise is my right to vote. Here, wait. It also says, hashtag toast the vote. Nice. Love that. During the during the primaries, we'll have to uh, we'll have to be using that hashtag. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, what should we cheers to? Cheers to kids being back in school and being their teachers' problems. Yay! Yay! A couple of childless women cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. This is what exactly what I was. I wanted something lighter. I was telling Emily like we've done two reds in a row. Not that I I like I actually really like reds now, which was, never was a thing before. But this week. I don't know. I just felt like something it's kind of lighter like, on the tongue. We're we're recording on Labor Day weekend. It's like the last hurrah for summer, even though fall is like firmly upon us at this point, I feel. It's my favorite season. It is. Fall. Yeah, same. Not summer. <laughs> Except when we get those really rainy falls where it's like, I guess I'm just gonna like wash the leaves, change colors under the rain from my fucking house. But uh this is a good like summer wine. I'm used to, like, I drink a lot of bubbly Moscatos and, like, the carbonated, but this is so, it's smooth, it's mellow, it's almost, like, glassy. Like, if you ever mm-hmm. see the ocean when it's so still and it's glassy, that's what this tastes like. In a good way. In a good way. Yeah, good way. yeah it, doesn't say, it doesn't taste like seawater, but it's just, it's smooth, it's sweet, it's exactly everything that it needs to be, and I appreciate it. Talking about things that smell or taste or... Sorry, I, I saw like a shadow oh, go a by behind you. Oh, no, it was like... The dogs might be outside. It, it could be because there was like a big shadow that went across that house. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess there's a ghost today. Super cool. It's not October yet. Calm the fuck down. But speaking of things that look or taste like other things, we got McDonald's for breakfast this morning. We got it delivered, which is the stupidest thing because it's like less than a mile or maybe a mile or two away. Yeah, But neither of us wanted to get dressed. Because we got woken up at 6.30 this morning and, like, we were not having it. So we had it delivered. And I, like, grabbed the delivery bag, which is kind of cool. Like, when you get it delivered, there's, like, they have, like, a bigger bag. And then they actually put, like, a cup holder in the bag. So, like, I was like, there's no cups. But they were in the bag. It was really neat. But the bag smelled like Chinese food. (laughs) Like, straight up. And then, like, when Justin took my coffee out of the bag, he's like, your coffee smells like soy sauce. I'm like, what, did the driver just drink my coffee and go, I hear soy sauce. Oh, my God. It did not taste like soy sauce. But I'm not even joking. Like, you would have thought I was pulling, like, fried rice out of that bag. I wonder why, though. Like, where does the cross-contamination happen? Maybe he was also delivering Chinese food, but most places in Rochester, the Chinese places don't open till like, 11. I was going to say, no one's getting 8 a.m. Chinese for breakfast. If you've ever done that, like, tell us your story, because I would love to hear. I've eaten leftover fried rice for breakfast before. Yeah, but that's leftover. You know, I've eaten leftover lo mein for breakfast, but seriously, if you have had ordered Chinese food for breakfast, I want to hear the tragic series of events that led to that decision so desperately i would totally do that if our restaurants were open earlier. okay all right well kelly i still want to hear the story kelly we're gonna to get together we're gonna to get some chinese food for breakfast and then we'll live tweet our experience sounds good our chinese bag smells like mcdonald's what the fuck <laughs> that would make more sense <laughs> all right well uh i have a say their name for us today and our say their name is Laura, and I'm not going to say your last name because uh, I don't know if I have permission to share that, and I like to be sensitive to people's privacy. But you know who you are. Yeah, Laura knows who she is. And if, you're, if your name is Laura and you're like, is it me? Then it's probably not you. 
So Laura messaged us with a recommendation, uh, and this is who I will be covering today. But that apparently gave Emily nightmare. Yes. Uh, so thanks for that, Laura. You are haunting my dreams in the worst way. So she wrote us, hi, Kelly and Emily. Thank you for your podcast. I have a 40-minute drive to work. That sounds like hell. I, I driving 40 minutes to something fun is even like, is it worth it? Like, let alone going to work. Uh, but she goes on to say, and love listening to your podcast while I drive. I've always loved history and so, and more so history about kick arse women. I'm like, I love that you say arse. It makes me smile. Women are not portrayed enough in history. One woman I would love for you to research is Irina Sendler. She was kick arse and I admire her courage. And so like Lori didn't give me a detail. She's like, Irina Sendler kicks ass. Like do it. That's all you need to know. So I did a cursory Google search and I was like, oh hell yes, this is happening. So Laura, I am whining about Irina Sendler today for you. Yay. I want to let you know though. I started having bad dreams before I even started the research. Like that cursory Google search gave me bad dreams. I was like, oh shit. (laughs) But Irina's story is really incredible. It's really important and it desperately needs to be shared to a wider audience. But here we are. (laughs) I mean, we have a semi-wide audience. Yeah, we we got listeners from all over the place. It's awesome. Let's do this. All right. So Irina Sendler was born in Warsaw, Poland as Irina Krzyzanowska. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of Polish in here. And my poor Polish grandparents are rolling over in their graves because I don't know what I'm doing. It's okay. I love you anyways. So she was born on February 15th, 1910, which is like 80 years and six days before my birthday. What? What? I actually, I was trying to do that math and I'm like, what if this isn't right? Like, I guess I'll just be wrong. It's fine. I don't know. I don't think anyone else is going to do the math. You do the math. So now Irina actually has multiple names used to refer to her. I, uh, I'm i largely going to refer to her as like Irina Sendler. But her second name is Irina Stanislaw after her father, Dr. Stanislaw Henrik Krzyzanowska. And this is the name that she was baptized under. So she was born Irina Krzyzanowska and her like baptismal name was Irina Stanislaw after her dad. So her doctor dad was a humanitarian who used his skills to treat the poor for free. So he's like the best kind of doctor where he's like, I have all these important skills. I'm going to give them, I'm going to use them on people who can't afford my amazing skills. And he didn't discriminate against his patients. He would treat Jewish patients despite being Catholic. And like to us, this sounds super duh. Like you're literally not allowed to discriminate against your patients. It's the Hippocratic Hippocratic oath? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm like, am I am I confusing that word with no. hypocrite? You're, you're right. <laughs> um, but anti-Semitism was really, really strong in the in the early 1900s, and doctors routinely refused to see Jewish patients. So the fact that he's not a Jewish man, he's Catholic, and he's like, yeah, if you're Jewish, I super like. I'm sorry, you have a thorn in your paw. Like, let me deal with this. Oh, you have a, a hernia or something. Like, let me help you out. So Stanislaus, I really hope that he called people's hands paws. I do too. He he wanted to be a vet, but he's like, there's more money in people. And so he referred to like people parts as animal parts. Heck yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I was thinking of that. That was that fable, like the, the lion with the thorn in its paw, paw and yeah. the mouse gets it out. 
So Stanislaw's positive impact on the Jewish community is evident in the fact that after his death in February of 1927, after contracting typhus from one of the patient, one of his patients, the Jewish community offered his widow and Irina financial assistance. Wow. So he died not that long after Irina was born. She was born in 1910, and he died in 1927. So she was 17. Yeah, but still, I don't know. It just seemed really sad. I mean, it and, is. And the fact like, that, like, he, he's trying to help people and, like, I don't know. It, it just seemed like a very, it was selfless, it but sad. tragic. Yeah. Um, Irina's mother did turn down the assistance. I'm not sure if it was, like, a pride thing or if, like, they just didn't need it. But the Jewish community was like, if you need help, like, we're here for you, which I think is so sweet. Like, your your family was here for us. It also we're might here have been you. maybe a little out of fear. You know, like, oh, if people find out about this. It could, but it seems like maybe they didn't necessarily need the money and they were able to get all, get by all right because Irina was able to attend the University of Warsaw where she studied law for two years Aww. before switching to Polish literature, English Nerds Unite, or I should say Literature Nerds Unite, Polish literature. I shouldn't call it English. <laughs> yeah, literature would be better. Uh, so she also studied social welfare as a graduate student. So she's like doing the damn thing. So she was in school from like 1932 to 1937. She took several breaks throughout her studies, but she was like, she was very well educated. She was very driven. And during this time, she witnessed the segregation practice called ghetto benches. Just such a delightful name. And this was a really common practice at Polish universities. So Poland was seeing an increase of Jewish citizens as a result of the Russian Civil War. And this led to them being the second largest minority after Ukrainians in Poland. Wow. So as we often see with an influx of immigrants or like a minority growing, the established population is like, no, just like is a bunch of assholes about it. But this obviously also led to an increase of Jewish students at Polish universities where they actually consisted of a third of the student population by 1920. Wow. Unfortunately, you know, this led to a swell of anti-Semitism and discriminatory, discriminatory policies targeting Jewish people. And I, it's, it's so unfortunate because I feel like it's one of these patterns in history that you see all the time where it's like there's an influx of a certain nationality, religion, whatever, and then everyone's like, oh, they're our new enemy number one. Yeah, it's like, they're, they're who we're going to hate because it's easier to hate someone else. Yeah, because fuck them. Immigration should have stopped after me. <laughs> Right. So one of these policies was ghetto benches, which enforced segregated seating in classrooms where Jewish students had to sit on the left-hand side of all lecture halls. And this was obviously accompanied by violence, especially if someone didn't want to abide by the segregated right. seating. And university students also had Jewish and not Jewish de designations on their like grade and ID cards. So they're literally carrying around a car that says if they're Jewish or not. Yeah, it's almost like the Holocaust where they made them wear... The Star of David. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's singling you out. And then it's That's like, terrible. well, we want to make sure no one's accidentally discriminating against non-Jewish students. So we're going to make it really easy for you to identify the Jewish students because they're on the left side of the room. And even if you're not super sure, we're going to write it on their, their card. Like, and here's the weird thing. I don't understand the left side of the room. Like it doesn't seem better or worse it's than the right side, just an but arbitrary. it's no, but it's about singling them out. Yeah. So everyone in the room knows those are the Jewish students 
and it's, it's singling them out because, oh, well, we, we feel they're different and they're bad. And it, I'm like, if you have to seat everyone on that side of the room, like how different, I don't know. It's just, it's so stupid. And like any racist or anti-Semitic thing that you come across, even two seconds of critical thinking, it all falls apart. And it's just like, this is just like bullshit. It's like playground bullying on an extremely dangerous scale. Yeah, it's te- that's terrible. So Irina was super not on board with this bullshit and joined other students in protesting the segregated seating and even defaced the non-Jewish identification on her card. Yeah. She like scratched it out and she's like, you don't get to know what I am. <laughs> Fuck you guys. And for her rebellion, Irina was met with disciplinary measures and earned a reputation as a communist and a philo-Semite, oh, which is someone who's really into Jewish people. <laughs> Hard eye roll from this side I'm of the like, room. I love that not wanting to discriminate against Jewish people makes you like, uh, like an intense lover of Jews. It's like, no, that makes me a human fucking being. <laughs> So this reputation would eventually hinder her job search as recommendations from her university labeled her as an extremist. Jesus. It was so easy being an extremist back then. Yeah, clearly. But the Nazis, they were totally middle of the road. Everything they were doing was fine. Oh, my God. So remember, she's a radical because she thinks seg- segregation and anti-Semitism is bullshit. Yeah. I bet she also wore pants. Probably. And then they labeled her a lesbian. She's a communist lesbian extremist. So though Irina had submitted her thesis for her magister degree, which I think is like a, a master's degree, she skipped out on her final exams, instead joining the Polish Socialist Party, a left-wing political party. She joined a group of social workers at the Free Polish University led by Professor Helena Radzlinska. And I should have said this at the top. This is such a brief overview of Irina and her life. And Helena actually was a big part of the resistance movement that Irina will eventually become a part of and was a huge inspiration. But I, this story is like six pages. I couldn't get into all of it. So as part of her social work, Irina conducted onsite interviews and witnessed the extreme poverty, which the Jewish population of Warsaw was experiencing. She also worked with impoverished, socially disadvantaged women and traveled around the poor neighborhoods of Warsaw. So she's like boots on the ground social worker seeing all this firsthand. And she also put her two years of law school to work by working at the section for mother and child assistance at the citizen committee for helping the unemployed. And this basically offered people in need legal counseling and yeah. social help. Oh, so that's nice. I'm like, I love that she's not a lawyer, but she's like, I, I did like two years. So I'm definitely the help. most qualified. <laughs> Irina had a front row seat to the societal inequality. And in 1934, she published two papers which discussed the hardships with child- which children born out of wedlock and their mothers faced. And I'm like, Oh, God, thank God we don't deal with that anymore. Thank God we all totally got over that bullshit. Yeah, right. But I thought that was interesting because she's already, she's identifying, yeah, like, kind of that systemic poverty. And it's like the situation in which you're born into can kind of, like, trap you in poverty. Exactly. And just even the, the social diseases which lead to things like poverty. And I, I thought that was really interesting. So in 1935, after the government shut down the organization she was working for, Irina was uh, 
Irina began working for the government in the Department of Social Welfare and Public Health. And actually, a lot of people who were working for that organization moved to the Department of Social Welfare with her because it's like, well, I mean, this is like what we do. This is what we're trained to do. So we'll do it for the government. Now, if you've been paying attention to the dates, you know some serious shit. You know what's coming. It's about to go down. On September 1st. 1939, World War II began when Nazi Germany invaded Poland. And remember, World War II didn't happen out of nowhere. There was a steady buildup with the Nazi party taking power, limiting education, job opportunities for Jewish citizens, building concentration camps. Like, I think it was like 1932, the same year or the year after Hitler was elected to power. Like, they broke ground. They broke ground on concentration camps. Like... And they were imprisoning German citizens, engaging in mass murder. Like, it just all the horrible things that we associate with Nazis. Like, this was already going on. And, like, we kind of knew it. And Poland is right next door. So oh, yeah. They, and they're like, oh, they shit. They screwed. So when the Nazis invaded Poland, they quickly implemented their murderous anti-Semitic agenda, forcing Jewish people out of their jobs, including where Irina worked. So because she's a Catholic, she wasn't forced out of her job, but a lot of her co-workers were. They also forbade her department from providing any assistance to Jewish citizens, which, as we've already discussed, are having a really rough time of it because Poland is not exactly the most friendly place. The Jewish population is living in poverty. They're being discriminated against. There's segregation. And now the Nazis come in. They're like, what you guys are doing is cool. And we're going to take it even further. We're we're just going to help you and take all of these people away from you. So by 1940, Hitler ordered nearly half a million Jews to be forcibly relocated into 1.3 square miles of land, which became known as the infamous Warsaw Ghetto. Here's the thing. I looked up that like 1.3 square miles and the population that was forced into there. I cross-checked that everywhere because I'm like, how do nearly 500,000 people fit into 1.3 square miles of space without like literally being stacked on top of each other? That's what it is. Yeah. And I mean, like six families would be sharing one room. Like it was... They're packed in there like sardines. And these pet people were essentially held as prisoners surrounded by high walls and subjected to constant surveillance by the Gestapo. And many homes in the ghetto had no running water. There were few public baths. Mm. They suffered from illness and starvation for which they were offered zero help. Yeah. Yeah. No one cared. So when you have so many people in such a small amount of space and they have practically no utilities... It, things just get worse. It's it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. Yeah. I actually read an article. They were talking about, um, we'll get into this a little later, but they were talking about illness in the Warsaw Ghetto and how people fought against it and like tried to come together as a community to prevent its spread. And so they were, they were comparing like what people did then to like how we're handling COVID-19 in the present. And one survivor of the Warsaw Ghetto talked about these little combs that they had because I think it was typhus was really common and that could be spread by lice. And so they would be checking their kids' hair all the time with or these they little would just combs. Shave their heads. Yes. Yeah, they even could. Like I <laughs> sounds like they got nothing to work with here. And like 
this was so horrible for the people who are trapped in this ghetto. And this must have been also an emotional blow to Irina, who had been fighting so hard against anti-Semitism as a student and as a social worker. And now the poster poster children for anti-Semitism had invaded her country and wasted no time in decimating the Jewish population. Yeah, She's like, terrible. oh my God, like this just went from really bad to fucking worse. But instead of succumbing to despair in the face of a seemingly insurmountable enemy, Irina did what she had always done. She fought back. Irina and her colleagues gained access to the Warsaw Ghetto under the guise of checking for typhus, kind of like I mentioned before. Yeah. Now, obviously, these people are living in terrible conditions, so you might be wondering why the Gestapo actually gave a shit about if anyone in there had typhus. It wasn't because they were showing, like, compassion. No, they're... Get that they out of your head. They're a bunch of asshole right? Nazis. Exactly. They're worried about themselves. So typhus is a highly contagious bacterial disease, which is carried by body lice. Thus, they were checking kids with the combs. Other than making the sufferer feel like absolute hell, it also killed around 5 million people during World War I. So the soldiers were terrified of getting it and having it spread beyond the ghetto because they're like, well, if we get it, we're fucked. And they're like, it's breed. It could breed in there like mm-hmm. crazy. And this was actually their excuse for forcibly relocating people into the ghetto in the first place. They're like, well, these Jewish people are really dirty, so we got to put them all in one spot to, like, protect everyone else. Like, no, you're just being monsters. You're just terrible people. Yeah. So there would be no antibiotic treatment for the disease until 1967. So this is a very real threat to them. So the Warsaw Ghetto is crammed with people. There are few baths or running water, and sometimes up to six families are living in a single room. So it's very easy for typhus to get out of control and spread to the Nazi soldiers that were, you know, just want to terrorize everyone unimpeded. So it was in their best interest to allow Irina and her colleagues to venture into the ghetto to check for outbreaks because then they don't have to do it. They don't have to risk exposing themselves. Exactly. But they weren't just checking for typhus. Because they're better than that. They smuggled in food, medical supplies, clothing, and other resources. And this was not just a like, oh, you know, whatever, no big deal. If they were caught, not only could they be killed, but their entire families could be rounded up and murdered. Yep. That sucks. Irina witnessed desperate parents trying to smuggle their children out of the ghetto over the walls and even through the sewers. Like anywhere you could get out, they're trying to get their kids out. She knew that the only way for the people trapped in the ghetto to survive was to escape. Like, either you're going to die here or you're going to get sent somewhere else and die. And Irina worked to coordinate a series of rescue efforts focusing on children because they were a lot easier to smuggle out. And children were smuggled out in a variety of creative ways, including bundled in dirty laundry, in cargo boxes, toolboxes, coffins, that's my favorite, briefcases, Stacking three of them in a trench coat. Not really. That's just me. And like literally anything else that could fit a child and look inconspicuous. And children who were too big for these means of transportation were smuggled through the church and courthouse, which actually straddled the boundaries of the ghetto. So once out of the ghetto, Irina got children to safe houses and set them up with false documents before smuggling them to like orphanages, convents and foster families across Poland. To help hide their identities, the children were given Christian names and taught Christian prayers as not to accidentally reveal their Jewish identities to the Nazis or others who might turn them in. So basically, they, out of a necessity for survival, they're like, okay, 
here's your Christian name. Here's how to say Hail Mary. Here's how I do the side of the cross. You don't Yom Kippur. You don't celebrate that anymore. Like forget all of your Jewish heritage. And like, as I'm doing this research, I was imagining how these children, though they're being given the best chance at survival, basically had to give up their identities and they may have trouble reconnecting with their families after the war. And that's another form of genocide. You know, it's not just killing people, but it's killing that culture. Right. But Irina was on top of that shit because, oh my God. So she kept extensive records of each child recording their given names, their Christian aliases, where they were sent, and other information that was relevant on cigarette paper. And then she would like roll up these little slips of paper and store them in jars. And this meant she could account for each Jewish child that was saved, where they went, what they were going by now, so she could track them down later. Right. And to keep these records safe, she buried the jars. And Irina did all of this with the hope that the children could be reunited with their families after the war. And honestly, like, I can't imagine thinking that far into the future and that hopefully in the midst of this truly horrifying situation. Yeah. Like, I'd just be like, I just need to get to the next day. And she's like, once this is all over, we're, you're, you're going to be, re- I'm going to find you. You're going to be reunited with your families. This is a temporary thing to get you out of this deadly ghetto, you know? And so even though this record keeping was incredibly important, having any record of her work put Irina at greater risk of being discovered and killed. So the fact that she, it would have been so much easier and quite frankly, safer for her not to write any of this down. She's like, no, like these children deserve to have their identities. They deserve to be found and reunited with their families once this is over. I also want to point out how just devastating this must have been for parents They knew that their children had to get out of the ghetto to survive, but they also knew that they may not survive the war themselves and may never see their children again. The pain and selfless love which these parents showed by doing everything they could to give their children the best chance at survival is just indescribable to me because when these children were smuggled out of the ghetto, I mean, that was the last time their parents saw them and vice versa in many, many cases. And that is just terrible and and then putting your child's life in the hands of someone you don't even really know just with the hopes that they're going to make it out of this alive i i can't imagine that was just it's heartbreaking so it's impossible it's impossible to imagine i i can't i i absolutely cannot but wait things got worse So in July of 1942, the Nazis began rounding up prisoners of the ghetto to be transported to concentration camps. On a daily basis, people were terrorized, rounded up, and taken away, often never to be seen again. And I saw this referred to as the Great Action, and it was also called liquidating the ghetto. Oh, God. And I'm like... This is so detached and business-like. Like, oh, we're just, we're going to liquidate the ghetto to, you know, increase our production on murdering people. And ch- Like, this is mass murder. Yeah. You don't get to call it something so casual it's as genocide. the great action and liquidate. It's genocide. You fucking monsters. And that just, that fucked me up. I was like, how dare we call it anything other than genocide and mass murder? So because of this, Irina kicked into high gear, working tirelessly to get people out of the ghetto before they were taken to the death camps. Because now 
It's not that everyone's trapped in the ghetto. Like they're being, they're being taken away. And once they're gone, they're gone. Like she can't do anything. So like I mentioned, Irina was not alone in these efforts. And many of the other women she worked with in the welfare department were working to smuggle people out of the ghetto too. But now that the Nazis were quickly moving people to the concentration camps, these women were all working individually so that they could like speed things up rather than as an organization. They're all just like kind of agents in of themselves to like, okay, let's get this kid out. Let's get this kid out. How are we going to do this? This is your name. Let me get the documents. Let me get the false papers. So Irina also lost friends who were were unable or unwilling to leave the ghetto. Because remember, she had coworkers that were Mm -hmm. kicked out of their jobs and then sent to the ghetto. And I found the names of two of her former coworkers at the welfare department who had been forced out of their jobs for being Jews. The first woman was Eva Rechtman, who, according to the Holocaust Survivors and Victims Database, did survive the Holocaust. I couldn't find a ton of information about her, but she she did survive. The second woman was Ala Golb Greenberg, a nurse who saved children from being sent to the concentration camps before herself being sent to Ponyatova concentration camp. So she was kind of doing what Irina was doing, but she was in, she was trapped in the ghetto too, but she was helping smuggle yep. kids out. And she had been able to secure her own child with friends outside of the ghetto but did not want to leave because there were children still trapped there. And she wrote to these friends, quote, I give my child in your care, raise my child as if it was yours. While imprisoned in Ponyatova, she helped the children in the camp until she died there. So she literally, she is trapped in the ghetto and then she is sent to a concentration camp. She, she could have gotten out. She probably could have gotten out because she had the connections, but she stayed because she's like, these children need me. There's no one else here. Like their parents are dying. They're being sent to different places. Like I, I need to be here for these children. And she died. And I, th- this was kind of like a side search for me. I just wanted to see if I could find any information about these women. And I, I just thought that was so incredible. And it was, it was, um, it was an, in, it was a, it was a great opportunity to kind of explore their stories because their stories are indicative of so many others. Their their stories are not necessarily unique and it's just tragic. Yeah, it is. Like that's heartbreaking. Yeah. So Irina knew she could only do so much on her own. So she teamed up with a Nazi resistance group called Jagoda who helped to finance and expand her rescue operations. They stashed money in post boxes all across Poland for Irina to pick up, and she earned her third name and operated under her nom de guerre, Jolanta, uh, and this was to keep her identity and the identities of her family members safe. So Jolanta is derived from the Greek words for violet and flower. She's just full of dark violence. (laughs) Dark notes of dark violence. But I thought that was that was really cool. So she used this uh, money from Jagoda to expand her network of resistance workers and became the coordinator of the welfare department network. And while the money was always felt insufficient because the money it would take to like get everyone out and save everyone is astronomical. It did help Irina and her network to help way more people. Oh, yeah. So Irina and her network were also able to create a series of emergency shelters to temporarily house Jews during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which lasted from uh, April to May of 1943. 
during which the remaining prisoners of the ghetto resisted the Nazis' final effort to transport them to the death camps. They used weapons and explosives, which had been smuggled in to fight the Nazis, and they even built bunkers to hide others from being taken. And I remember learning about this in school. Uh, Unfortunately, it did ultimately fail. It was the largest single revolt by Jews during World War II, though. Like, this was their last stand. And one surviving member said that the inspiration for the uprising was, quote, not to allow the Germans alone to pick the time and place of our deaths. And that is so important, I feel, because they're like, you guys, like, they kind of knew this probably wouldn't work, but they're like, we're not letting you just cart us off and do what you want. We're we're, We're like, if we're going to die, we're going to determine when. Yeah, we're doing this on our own terms. And it's what a, the Nazis are trying to strip these people of all of their humanity and what a human thing to just want that control and to just want to exert power over their own destiny. Even if they kind of knew how it was going to turn out. It's like, I we're love not it though. Like that's amazing. It's it, it breaks my heart. But at the same time, it's but like it's to be really so cool. beaten down and still be like, no, like mm-hmm. we're going to do this on our terms. And this is where I kind of went down a second rabbit hole. Cause I was reading more about the uh, Warsaw uprising. Of course. And you have probably, Kelly, I know you have seen this photo, even if like you may not recognize it, but our listeners have also probably seen the photo of a Jewish woman and children being forcibly removed from a bunker where they were hiding and they're surrounded by armed Nazi soldiers. And in the photo, there is a little boy, he's got his like little coat, his little knee high socks, his little newspaper cap. He's like maybe six or seven years old. He's also tiny because I bet he's starving. Well, probably. And... He stands like with his hands over his head, like don't shoot. And he lo- he looks like he's trying not to cry. He looks like he's trying to put on a brave face. And this is one of the most iconic photos from World War II. Well, I learned it was actually taken oh. by an SS officer to document their efforts to remove the last Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto. And it is mind-blowing that this photo survived because they tried to destroy so much evidence of the Holocaust and they're literally taking pictures. And this wasn't in a way to document the horrors of war, which it does. No, this is a celebration photo. Yeah, look at us rounding up all these women and children. Look at this little boy who's trying not to cry. That's so disgusting. Yeah, and it's, oh God. And I didn't know that was taken by an SS officer. And I'm like, what? You're like, I regret everything i think when i see photos like that i always i i'm in the automatic mindset that was taken by like a war journalist or something but that it makes zero sense for a journalist to be snapping shots in the warsaw ghetto yeah there's there's no way the nazis would let them (laughs) yeah no the the nazis were documenting their own atrocities so irene yeah feel gross but like this is what's happening yeah so Irina's safe houses allowed surviving Jews to stay safe while the larger Zagoda network forged their papers so that they can move into long-term safe locations. In August of 1943, Zagoda created a children's section of their resistance movement, and Irina took over as the section's leader in October of 1943. Aww. So, like, Zagoda is, like, a big fucking deal. They've got yeah, different sections and departments for different kinds of people. They're forging paperwork to smuggle people out, like... They're and, amazing. And even like, you know, they have it, they have a whole leadership organization like, oh, you're the director of the children's section, even though this is a resistance. I don't know. It just 
I thought it was so cool how professional and organized it sounded for being a resistance group during a war. Like I always think of them as being a little like not not fly by night, but you know, a little more rustic, a little more improvised, I think, but they had their shit together. Yeah, (laughs) that's insane. In a crazy way. So Irina continued to work with Polish families, orphanages, and local convents to hide Jewish children from the Nazis safely. Approximately 25% of the children were permanently housed with families, while the remaining 75% were housed by convents, orphanages, and other charities, which makes sense because how many Jewish families can you, like, get to take on these children? How many children can they handle? Uh, and now remember the post boxes that Jagoda was using to covertly give Irina money? The same system that helped Irina expand her rescue efforts came back and bit her in the ass oh, in no. the worst way. The Gestapo threatened a laundry owner whose store had been uh, the site of one of the Jagoda post boxes. And the laundry owner gave the Gestapo Irina's name. And like part of me is like, why would you do that? But like, I, I. The Gestapo are scary. They're not just like, hey, could you give no, this information? Terrifying. Yeah, like there's torture, there's beatings, there's all sorts of horrors. Like, I can't be too critical, but it sucks. So at 3 a.m. on October 20th, 1943, Irina and her friend Janina Grabowska were sitting in Irina's apartment and they were just like hanging out, having like three seconds of peace when the Gestapo began banging on the fucking door. I'm sure it wasn't banging it was probably like kicking in well, yeah they're trying to take down the door so when Irina looked out the window she could see that the building was completely surrounded by SS officers so instead of trying to escape because that was definitely not going to happen Irina took one of the glass jars which contained the names of over 2,000 Jewish children and gave it to Janina she knew that the Gestapo got their hands on those names every single child she had helped would be in danger because you need the name of one convent And then you torture some people, you get the Mm. name of the others, you know, like it's, it just, it completely falls apart. Yeah. So Janina hid the jar in her loose clothing and thankfully the Gestapo didn't even bother searching her. And all I could imagine was like, so remember when we talked about like, um, girl gangs Mm -hmm. in like the Victorian era and how police didn't want to stop women because they're like, oh, it's impolite. I'm imagining they're doing that where they're just like, Like, oh, it's impolite to search a woman. Well, we don't, no one said your name. So we're just going to like leave you alone, even though you're having coffee or tea with a known resistance member, like no big deal. We're just going to assume you're fine. Yeah. Which like, thank God for their incompetence. They did arrest Irina and they brought her back to their headquarters where they beat her mercilessly the physical and psychological torture continued for months but Irina didn't give up any information about her comrades operations or the children that's impressive for months I cannot imagine and finally because they realized they couldn't get anything out of her Irina was sentenced to be executed on January 20th, 1944 by firing squad. The dogs are really upset about that. The dogs are deeply upset as they should be. They are freaking out. They're like, fuck you Nazis. Yeah, basically. 
So as the guards escorted her to be executed, I can only imagine what was going through Irina's mind. She's human, so we can't discount fear or despair, but I also imagine she felt satisfied knowing that the identities of the children she saved would finally be safe because there was no way they could yeah, like, no keep trying to get it out it. of her. Yeah, the, the jars were hidden. They were safe. They couldn't get any information out of her. She was dead. Then, at the last minute, a German officer stepped in and Irina was released. <gasps> bum, wow. bum, bum. Like part of me is like, are they just hoping to follow her back to, you know, like, you know, one of those things they release you and then they like follow you back to right, your hideout right. and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm sure Irina's smarter than that, but like part of me is like, is that what they, they're trying to do? So Jagoda actually paid the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars to bribe the guards into letting Irina go. Jagoda is the resistance organization she's working with. Yeah. A hundred thousand dollars. She's literally be being walked to be executed and they got the money to these guards just in time. I guess, I guess instead of taking you to be executed, we're just going to take you out of here. Yeah. Despite this, the Nazis uh, used bullhorns to announce that she had been executed to hide the fact that they'd been bribed. They're like, Oh, I read she's yeah, totally totally dead. dead. Totally dead. You want me to tell you the color of her blood? It was red. That that's that's how you can trust that we definitely right. murdered her. It's totally fine. She had this look of shock on her face when she died. Also, I'm gonna retire now. Right. <laughs> I'm gonna head over to Brazil. So after her release, the mayor of Warsaw asked the Nazis for permission to have Irina work for the welfare department again, which I okay, here's the crazy thing. I hope the, they'd like put her under a new name. So her working for the welfare department would include the back pay for the months that she was being tortured. So while she's working for Jagoda, she's also still got her job for the state welfare department. Oh, that's fantastic. Which then obviously she wasn't able to do the job because she'd been captured and was being tortured by the Nazis. And so the mayor of Warsaw is like, can she have her job back? Also, can you give us back pay for when you were torturing the shit out of her? Which I'm like, mayor but she's of- supposed to be dead. Right. But I'm like, mayor of Warsaw, what the fuck? And shockingly, the Nazis agreed, and maybe it's because she was supposed to be dead, and they're like, well, we don't want anyone talking about how Irina's still around. But she remained in hiding under the guise of a nurse named Clara Dabrowska. Hmm. And this earned her her fourth name. She's got so many fucking names. So many names. And honestly, I, great names. I would also want to go into hiding after this because the Nazis know who you are. And now they kind of know that Jagoda's willing to give them a bunch of money to get, to get you, you back. Yeah. So what would keep them from just arresting you again or following you around? Like she felt she was compromised. So about a month later, she reassumed her job managing the children's section of Jagoda. So she, a month after nearly being murdered, she's like, all right, back at it. Let's keep saving kids. On August 1st of 1944, the Warsaw Uprising began, and this was an operation led by multiple Polish resistance groups in an attempt to liberate Warsaw from Nazi Nazi occupation once and for all. So this is separate from the Warsaw Ghetto Rebellion, because this is the whole city of Warsaw is like, get the fuck out of here. Now we could do years and years worth of podcast episodes on this. So I'm just going to give you like a really brief overview because it's already long. So the Nazis defeated uh, the two month long uprising, which left 80 to 90% of Warsaw decimated. 
200,000 civilians dead and 700,000 forced out of the city. So it was brutal and it was bloody and it left Warsaw just like totally destroyed. Now, during the Warsaw Uprising, Irina worked as a nurse in a field hospital where she helped to treat patients and hide more Jews amongst the existing patients. So now she's pulling double duty. And in one instance, while out searching for food in the war-torn city, Irina was wounded by a German soldier she encountered. She survived and continued working as a nurse until finally the Nazis fled Warsaw in anticipation of approaching Soviet troops. So... Warsaw's having their own rebellion trying to get the Nazis out. And then the Nazis left on their own because they're like, shit, the Soviets are coming and we don't want to fuck with that. With, right. Yeah. So with Nazi Germany's defeat in 1945, Irina moved on to phase two of her work. She gathered all of the jars which held the records of saved Jewish children and worked with former Jagoda colleagues to locate them. Sadly, if not predictably, the family reunions Irina had hoped for were largely impossible. Most of the children's parents had been killed in the uh, Treblinka concentration camp or were missing. But she was able to track the children down and actually remained in contact with many of them throughout the rest of her life. Irina continued social work, fighting for labor reform, and remained politically active for the rest of her life. And honestly, I didn't, I, I started reading it. And I'm like, Okay, this is going to be like a three-part episode if I get into everything. So just trust me, she never fucking stopped. She was recognized during her life for her work, but was reluctant to accept praise. She said, quote, I continue to have qualms of conscience that I did so little. The woman who helped save 2,500 children regretted she couldn't do more. Well, and like how many countless other people too, probably. Well, Entire, entire family lines would have been destroyed had she not helped, you know? So Irina died in Warsaw, Poland on May 12, 2008 at 98 years old. The woman who was seconds away from being executed by firing squad lived to be 98 years old. She died when we were juniors in high school. That's insane. Good God. Like, it's just so, it's so remarkable to me. So now we have the legacy. So the list of honors and recognition, which Irina received during her life and posthumously are insane. There's so many. So I'm just going to name a few of my favorites. So get ready for a bitch and bullet list. In 1965, Yad Vashem, Israel's official memorial to victims of the Holocaust, honored Irina as one of the Polish righteous among the nations for her work for saving Jewish children. In 1991, the year we were born, she was made an honorary citizen of Israel. And in 2003, Pope John Paul II wrote Irina a letter praising her for humanitarian work. So I love that, like, so she's a Catholic and the Pope is like, way to go, Irina. She helped save Jewish people and like Israel's like, way to go. So she's kind of like, kind of like her father straddling those boundaries, which shouldn't have been there in the first place. I thought that was sweet. The same year, she received the Order of the White Eagle, which is Poland's highest civil honor. In 2009, so the year after she died, the year that we graduated from high school, and the year we met, she received the Humanitarian of the Year Award and the Audrey Hepburn Humanitarian Award. Because if you didn't know, Audrey Hepburn was a huge humanitarian. She wasn't just chilling out at Tiffany's eating breakfast and smoking cigarettes. Also, this one, I didn't know about. This kind of blew my mind. So Gal Gadot who's probably best known as Wonder Woman, 
is slated to play Irina in upcoming film. And apparently Gal Gadot will also be playing inventor and actress Hedy Lamar, yeah. who we should cover because she basically invented Wi-Fi. So she's just like- She's on my list. She's just like checking off the herstory heavyweights. Like we're going to have to watch all of Gadot, Gal Gadot's movies just to be like, yep, we saw the movie about this lady. We covered right. in this lady and this lady. Oh, that'd be great though. But I thought it was cool. Um, so now here's a really cool story. Irina's legacy was largely unrecognized in the United States, but in 1999, a plucky group of high schoolers in Uniontown, Kansas. Oh, Kansas. Like, I can't think of somewhere. For, Kansas seems like the farthest place from Poland that I can imagine. Like, it seems so random. But they led them, led by their teacher, Norman Conrad, researched her life and produced a play about her called Life in a Jar. Because these children's lives yeah. are recorded in these jars. That's so cool. And it has been staged over 200 times, both in the United States and abroad. The play was even adapted into a TV movie called The Courageous Heart of Irina Sendler in 2009, where Irina is played by Anna fucking Paquin. Goddamn rogue. Like, what? Why did I hear about this? I want to cry. I want to cry while watching Anna Paquin play Irina Sendler. And so as I want to do, I want to end this with a quote from Irina, because I think we all need a little hope right now. Yeah, we do. Quote, a person must be rescued when drowning, regardless of religion and nationality. And that is the very short, very sad, but very incredible story of Irina Sendler. I'm not crying. Yeah, You're crying. So yeah, thank you so much, Laura, for the suggestion. I've been having nightmares about the Holocaust and the Warsaw Ghetto. So also thank you for that. Um, but it, it's like we talk about some of the most important stories to tell are also the hardest. So yeah, thank you for pushing me to do that. And we have we've explored World War II in a lot of different um, lenses. I'm like, I keep wanting to say frames. I'm like, that's not it. But we've explored it through different lenses. I think this is the first time we've like gone to Poland and talked about the Polish resistance because, because Poland was the first country to be invaded by the Nazis and it happened so quickly. I feel like Poland gets this reputation for just kind of like rolling over and accepting it. And that's absolutely not what happened. There were so many people fighting the Nazis. There were so many people fighting to save the people being persecuted and Irina Sendler was one of them. So thank you. And now I'm going to sit back and drink. And I, I told Kelly I was going to have a heavy story. So hers is much more uplifting. Thank God. So let's do this. Let's do this. We let's. don't want to be sad anymore. No, I'm I'm so done being sad. I, I did a bunch of my research. Actually, in one night, I stayed up way too late. And I kind of gave, I told Jared what I was learning about. And then it's like 10 o'clock at night, which is late for me. And I was like, Jared, I'm not done, but I got through World War II. I got through World War II, but I am not done. Jesus Christ. Which is awesome because she she lived. Like, I think everyone thought my story was going to end in four pages because she was literally about to be murdered. That's funny. Yeah. I hope I did my Polish grandparents proud with those pronunciations. I think you did. You sounded they, pretty good. They, they got out of Poland way before, way before any way of this. Way before shit but, went down. Yeah, but. Okay, you ready? 
Mm-hmm. I'm covering Anne Bonfui Taylor. I'm already, her name has already got me smiling. Anne Bonfui Taylor. So she was born in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Sorry, hold on. There's <clears throat> <clears throat> something like stuck in my throat. Drink some wine, clear it out. I don't think that's how that works. Gargle the wine. <laughs> okay, let's start over. So I'm covering Anne Bonfui Taylor. It's a great name. She was born on December 3rd, 1910 in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. So, Pennsylvania. I know next to nothing about it. I know they have a large Amish population. That's where the Eastern State Penitentiary is. And I did not know that. Isn't Philadelphia in Pennsylvania? Yes. Yes. Sure. I've watched It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia a billion times. I should know it's in Pennsylvania. She was born to a wealthy family which owned pharmaceutical and dye manufacturing companies named Putnam Dyes. Putnam dies in everything. Right? <laughs> so she, um, the family moved shortly after she, I know there's like little fruit flies in yeah, there. Yeah, it's um, terrible. It's because we need to deal with some of these wine bottles. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out like, are any of them open and like still have wine in them? Um, anyways, so her family moved shortly after she was born to Quincy, Illinois. Ah! Yeah. So she would grow up in Illinois with her three brothers. When she was six, uh, her father introduced her to flying an open cockpit biplane. Because why not? It was some, a pastime her father really enjoyed. It's, it's just a fun father-daughter activity, yeah. flying planes. And when he was 12, or when she was 12, he hired an instructor to teach her how to fly. This is how she explains. I found an interview with her, so I have a lot of quotes from her. Oh, the, yes. I know. So this is how she explains it. She had flowered into a beauty and her father had, quote, found it difficult to cope, especially when boys started coming around the house to see me. So I'm sure he thought flying would be a useful distraction. So you can fly away from them. Right. She goes on. She, she went on to say, I was quite a spoiled puppy growing up with my three brothers and I was given everything a, gir- a little girl could possibly want. What made my upbringing more interesting, however, was that we had our own little airport, which was quite exciting. And that point, my father also bought his own plane and hired a pilot. I will say... Oh, I actually, uh, I have a friend from growing up and they had their own plane and their house was kind of in the middle of nowhere, which is, you know, 90% of Illinois. And there was an airstrip yeah. right by. And unfortunately, I never got to go up in the plane because my friend was like, do you want my dad to take you up in the plane? And my mom was like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> and I'm like, mom. That's funny. I was so disappointed. But Illinois has got to be a great place to learn how to fly because there's just nothing out there. Dave could take it's you just up. flat. I don't know if I want to go in a little plane, though. Actually, it's a four-seater. I could go with you. Okay, here's the thing, though. He'll let you drive. Going right now would be the best thing, but once we get famous from this podcast, I I won't go in small planes because famous people always die die in small plane crashes. But I'm not- Before we become famous. I was going to say, I'm not famous enough yet for it to- And I can't go with someone famous either. So I have to go with a bunch of nobodies. (laughs) So it was a distraction, at least initially, while a lot of the potential suitors around town were joyriding in their Model Ts and delighted in piloting her father's handmade Belanca open cockpit plane. After graduating from a prestigious boarding school in upstate New York, because of course that's what rich people do, um, she embraced athletics and excelled in everything from tennis to dressage. 
Dressage. Dressage. Hmm. Isn't dressage a horse thing? Yep. Okay, I was going to say. She's rich. She probably grew up with horses. I, I have to say, I love how this is like ticking all of my heritage boxes. So we just got done talking about Poland. We're talking about Illinois. And we're talking about upstate New York, where my mom like went to school and lived. That's crazy. Like, oh my God. my Even my Polish grandparents lived in upstate New York for there a while. Like, this is my life right now. So once she graduated, um, she met and married a Princeton undergraduate named James Cook in 1928. She was 18 years old. Is that the same James Cook that like went and terrorized the people in Hawaii? I don't know. Okay. Probably not. Probably not. I this don't know. Is He's not in the story after. super long. Okay. Um, so she describes him as, quote, a man whom I found quite uninteresting. <laughs> My father encouraged the match because he didn't think my local bow were quality enough for me. I love this. Remember when I covered, um, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on her name, but that socialite who thought that the prince, she was the erotic boa constrictor. Oh, yep, 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 yep. And she thought like Prince Philip. boring. Or, yeah, she's like, this is the most boring asshole I've ever met in my life. That's what I'm imagining. He's like got everything going for him, but he's basically a walking piece of white untoasted bread yeah. and she's just like she's like oh, kill me now but as a dutiful wife in course she gave birth to her first child later the year they were married and then another two years after that and the young couple would go on to settle in vermont i don't know vermont sounds lovely um her husband would manage his family's factories in burlington and she would <gasps> split her time between mothering modeling in new york she she would pose for magazine advertisements, including the Lucky Strike cigarette campaign. Oh, my God. Okay, I gasped too soon because when you said the Burlington factory, I'm like, oh, my God, is she Burlington Coat Factory? No. And then you're, like, saying way cooler stuff, and I'm stuck on Burlington Coat Factory. I mean, maybe it is, but that was her husband's thing, not hers. So, she w- so like I said, she would... She split her time between mothering, modeling, and sports. She was nationally ranked in tennis and actually went on to play at Wimbledon. Oh, my God. Yeah. She was good. This is the third person that we've covered that's gone to Wimbledon. Right? However, that wasn't enough. She needed another escape to um, escape from her increasingly troubled marriage. You know, because clearly she married him because her father was like, he's a good match for you. And she's like, I guess. Yeah. And it sounds like she's got a lot of stuff going for herself. Like she, she, he is not her life. If anything, he's like a hanger on for what she's got going on. My guess is like, he's also rich. So it was kind of probably like a business. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of those socialite couplings are more business decisions than decisions for love. Yeah, exactly. So, to, you know, assuage that troubledness <laughs> in the wintertime, she taught herself to ski. Oh, my God. Of course she did. That means Vermont. There's decent ski hills out there. Yeah. No, I, I love she's basically James Bond. Like, right. she's she's gorgeous. She's athletic. She can do all of these things. Like, she could totally just, like, drop into a war zone. And, like, she's in her backless dress. She's like, give me a martini, shaken, not stirred. And, like, right. takes down the, you know, the Third Reich all, yeah, all on her 100%. own. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. So she taught herself to ski um, and then found herself competing on the slopes of Mount Mansfield, which was nearby. Um, and she would go on to quickly master its most difficult run, which is a, which is a very steep run 
named nosedive. Like that's how steep this like <laughs> it's basically like a straight down drop. They might have just called it like you will die here right? mountain. <laughs> but that was her like favorite run. And in 1939, she actually earned a spot as an alternate on the U.S. ski team for the, for the, what would that be, 42 Olympics or the 40 Olympics? Oh my, she is, this is her secret identity to get into Germany to take down the Third Reich. Right. (laughs) She is Jamie Bond. Right, exactly. Um, hold on. One of my paragraphs, like, got moved. I'm sure I did it, but hold on. All right. So her her exploits at the time, coupled with her beauty and her very unique fashion sense, um, began attracting a lot of attention. Um, Harper's Bazaar, which is like a fashion magazine, yeah, published a full page black and white photo shot um, at Stowe, which is like a town I think in Vermont. Um, with the vivacious young mother um, shouldering a pair of wooden skis, wearing a plastic visor on her head, a smile, and a fluffy Mongolian wool coat. The caption read, quote, Mrs. James Negley Cook Jr. has become so closely identified with Mount Mansfield Crack Ski Trail that everyone calls her Nosedive Annie. She practically lives on it and is so expert on its dizzy twists and shooses that when she enters a nosedive race, the other entries blanch. Nose dive Annie. Yep. I she, love she it. She actually gets another name later, and so you'll have to you'll have to choose in in the title which one you want. Don't make me choose. That's wild. So I, I lied when I said there wasn't a sad point. This is the sad point, but it gets better. Her life kind of started going downhill from there. First, would you say it took a nosedive? It did. <laughs> First, the 1940 Olympic Games were canceled because war in Europe. Yeah. Um, and then shortly thereafter, she got a divorce from her husband because her husband ran off with one of her friends that was also a member of the women's ski team. Oh, damn. So for the first time in her life, even after have been like she was born into wealth, for the first time in her life, she was utterly alone, had two children and had no money. She had no money. Did he take all of it? So here's the quote from her. Quote, I then had to decide what on earth I was going to do with my life. My ex-husband had no intention of taking care of me properly, despite the terms of our divorce settlement, nor was my family able to help. My father, who was a brilliant but self-destructive man, had been addicted to prescription drugs. Meanwhile, my grandfather had slowly become senile and allowed his fortune to slip through his fingers. The only thing I knew a little bit about was aviations. I knew I liked planes. Oh, man. Because in a lot of those, uh, it, th- this is reminding me of that um, that book I read about like socialite women whose lives kind of went down the crapper. Uh, in a lot of those divorce settlements, the woman was allowed some kind of allowance. Yeah. As and I'm part of like she the had divorce. That, but he's just like, meh. Which is bullshit. Like, it sounds he has like, her yeah. Kids, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like, oh, yeah, he's supposed to give me money, but he won't. He doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So to pick herself back up by the bootstraps, because she is nothing if not creative at this point. And resilient. Right? She sold a piece of jewelry that her parents had given her on her 18th birthday, and it was enough money that she was able to enroll as an aviation major at the University of Vermont. 
I love her. Right. Because she's not like she's basically had every opportunity in the world. She's lived in the lap of luxury. Now, granted, she's been doing a lot with that, but she hasn't had to like she hasn't wanted for anything. And now she's in a position where all that's fallen apart. And she's like, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do this for myself. She's She's not crumbling. What can I do? She's like, "Okay, this is what I know. Let's do it. Um, I what that's such a sign of her character. Right. Um. So she quickly earned her commercial flight instructor's license, and she was one of only 25 women in the United States at the time to do so. Um, and then, obviously, since we're talking 1941, um, we became involved in the war in 1942? No, it was, uh, like, December 8th, 1941, because right. the day after Pearl Harbor, yep. the president's like, we're doing this. Fuck, fuck it. So she graduated before that. So she basically graduated in, like, a year and a half. She was, like, she flew through that. <laughs> you bitch Picking i love up you on your puns. oh my god the the like shit eating grin you just had is everything i need right now <laughs> um so so she had her commercial flight instructor's license and, the, and then the u.s became involved in the war and she was she she began working for the army and not only did she begin working for them she was recruited to train the u.s army and navy pilots Oh my God. She was that, I assume she was that good that, or they just needed people, but I'm going to go with she was that good. Well, yeah. Well, remember I covered, um, the waspy woman and there were a lot of people that applied and did not fucking make the cut. Yeah. And she was recruited. Yeah. She would go on to spend the war years commuting and sometimes hitchhiking, depending on the day between a rented barn in Stowe, where she was living with her children and where a maid would watch her children when she was traveling and she'd travel to the airport in Burlington six days a week oh, man. to train these soldiers. During this time, she earned another full-page photo in Harper's Bazaar as a flying school marm. <laughs> yeah. The picture is her posed next to an open cockpit army trainer, gazing skyward, wearing wool ski trousers and a parachute over a fur-lined parka. Her outfits are absolutely insane. Like, Go Google her. her. Her outfits are absolutely insane. By the way, the the woman who was in the wasps I was talking about was Hazel Ying Lee. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So she's in, she's uh, operating the same time Hazel is. Yep. That's super cool. Deaf friends. Besties. Um. So the caption of this photo notes, the men have taken kindly to their dazzling teacher. When occasionally she gets an overly cocky student, she gives him a dose of air acrobatics, tortures, tortures which she itemizes casually as wringing out snits, spins, snap rolls, and chandelles. I don't know what any of those are, but they sound very fancy. Right. After the war, uh, Anne started a business designing and making ski clothes. Because are you looking up pictures of her? I am. I'm, I'm looking at her ski out. Is there the picture of her in the giant yellow coat? Yes! With the dogs? Yeah. Oh my God. She's so, she's so like extra. Her, her fashion was very, very out there. I'm going to... Uh, okay, I have a question, but I don't want to like ruin the story. Is this the same like fashion Ann Taylor? Like when, when you th- no okay no, no, no. okay it just so happens that the person who came up with the fashion brand Ann Taylor just liked the name Ann because he thought it sounded British. Oh, it was a dude who's Ann Ann Taylor's a dude. Yeah, the person who started Ann Taylor because it came up. I didn't leave that note in because I was just like whatever. But yeah, no, that it started while she was alive and it just it was complete happenstance. Okay, because I'm like she's a fashion icon. I'm seeing her in this white coat with a giant like 
brown puppy hat. Very unique. Just, this is... Right. Oh, this is wild. And there's one where she looks like she's got some serious tan, like her... She can't, it's from skiing. She, she looks a little like Trump, though, because she's got like the white around her eyes and then the rest of her face is super tan right. from skiing. Ex- except for, yeah, unlike Trump, hers is from skiing. Yeah, and not like bad tanning. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> like the like the quote said, some, some of the uh, men she taught took a little too kindly to their instructor. In her memoir, she wrote that one of her students, a Vanderbilt, so a guy that came from money. The Vanderbilt, the railroads. Yep. He had invited her back to the family estate where, af- where, quote, after a delicious meal and dinner in a beautiful 18th century wood panel dining room, he made a very unwelcome and extremely unwise sexual advance. Ew. Quote, Harry, you're foolish. How ridiculous. End quote. That's what she told them. And they got into the most tremendous fight overturning lamps and furniture. Harry was, however, a very, like, small, skinny man. While she, you know, she's been doing sports she's her whole athle- life. She's tiny, but she's athletic as hell. Right. And fortunately for her, she wasn't wearing a dress. She was wearing jeans and tennis sneakers. <laughs> so she's like, they got into this fight and she was able to just like get away and call them a damn fool. I'm imagining her just like picking him up by his collar. Cause she looks like a very petite woman. You're a damn fool. Harry. Yeah, yeah, she's picking him up by his wall. collar. It's like a superhero movie. She throws him against the wall and he like breaks the wall. Oh my Another god! Another role I love for it. Gal Gadot. Yes, is that how you say it? I have no idea. Oh, I thought it was Gal Gadot. Listeners, tell us which, like, Gadot or Gadot. I feel like neither of us are saying yeah, it right. right. Someone's <laughs> gonna be like, it's actually Gada. I don't know. Gadot. <laughs> it's Gouda. <laughs> <laughs> so, following the war, Anne started a business designing and making her own ski clothes. Although it was an initially a cottage industry, meaning she was operating it out of her own home. So if you've ever heard of that term, that's that's what it means. Yeah. So like a lot of Etsy shops are technically like cottage businesses. I feel like now we call them like out of your garage, yeah. like businesses or start home out of your businesses. Garage. Yeah. So she was operating out of her own home, but she obviously had a lot of connections. Like she reached out to Harper's Bazaar and other fashion magazines and like other designers she knew. And so even though it started really like slow after she reached out to everyone, like she started seeing a really significant crease, increase in orders. So much so that she ended up opening her own shop in Stowe, Vermont, and then she would go on to sell the distribution rights to her clothes to a company called Lord and Taylor. Oh, I've heard of them. Yep. And they would actually go on to feature her clothing in window displays on Fifth Avenue in New York City, which is like the fashion area in New York City. That is the window. Yeah, exactly. It would also go on to spawn 20 other stores employing 300 inmates from the women's penitentiary to knit for them around the clock. Oh, my God. It's kind of cool, though, that they're using. I mean, like, like if, if the as women- long as they're not like slave laborers, which uh, unfortunately, just w- with the way our uh, prison industrial complex works, I'm like, oh, uh, but like borderline, I guess are you like women making some money? Hopefully they're able to turn their lives around. Right. So that winter she met who she would call the love of her life. Vernon Moose, in quotes. <laughs> Air bunnies. Yep. Taylor Jr., who was a handsome young Texas oilman. He was on his way for, to Quebec's Mount Tremblant and called called on her shop in Stowe, Vermont, to purchase a pair of ski trousers because he was going skiing. Anne said, quote, I thought he was delicious. All I can imagine is Doug Dimidome of the Dinsdale Dimidome because like the Texas, Texas oil magnet. Yep. yep. Oh my God. So she, if not love at first sight, lust at first sight. Yeah. 
That and big she, hat was right. really, really doing it for her. She actually went on to enlist the help of two friends to secretly follow him to Canada. Oh, shut the fuck up. I would help you do that. If you if you were that in love with someone, Emily, I would help you follow them to Canada. I love that you would help me maliciously stalk someone. I mean, maybe not malicious. All stalking is malicious. Here we go. So this is a quote from, from Anne again. Quote, of course, I feigned great surprise when we bumped into each other again. Those, those ski clothes of yours, Moose said. I had to leave the restaurant after breakfast this morning with the New York Times in front of me because the zipper went on the trousers and they're the most appalling clothes I have ever bought in my life. Oh, Mr. Taylor, I do owe you an apology. Will you have tea or a drink with me at five o'clock? In the end, he just said, I think I'd like to have a ski house and we could get married. End quote. Oh, okay. Hold on. So he insults he her insults clothes. He insults her clothes. She's like, I'll make it up for you. Like, let's have tea or a drink. And she's, he's like, yeah, how about we get married? This is where negging came from. How dare you provide a, an example where negging works? I'm sorry. Because by May, they were married. Like, oh she my was, God. I think she didn't even like care. Like, she was just like, I'm not listening to your insult. It's like she, all white yeah. noise. <laughs> However, he's a Texas oil man. So her fame and financial independence were at odds with what Moose believed, you know, to be a good Texas housewife. He, he was a little more uh, into the traditional gender roles yeah. and a woman's and place mean, it's, in the home. It's the 19... 19- 50s i actually don't know what decade we're in but yeah like if this is mid after 1900s well because is this after mid, world war ii mid 20th century yeah, yeah it's after world war ii so then yeah probably 1950s so while staying at saint regis and driving back and forth to manhattan with her own limo driver you know and she's just kind of all over the place and she was in new york for christmas because she was working with lord and taylor to make a christmas display and costume for the Rockettes Radio City Music Hall pageant. Oh my God. So she's like out there doing her shit. Um, but she received an ultimatum from Moose via telegram. That's the era we're in. Okay. That is like the old school version of by text though. Right. Like fuck this guy. Because if you're very far apart from someone, it's like, okay, you have to have heavy conversations. I get that. You do that shit over the phone. I know you can afford a phone, you asshole. Doing right. it by telegram is such a this pussy is, move. This is great, though. This might be the best telegram ever, just because it <laughs> makes me laugh. Take off those golden slippers, woman. Come home to hard reality. That was it. Oh, that was it. <laughs> Moose, you little bitch. I just like the take off the golden slippers, woman. I hope it was a singing telegram. Take off the golden slippers, woman, and come home to reality. That'll be $45. (laughs) Plus tip. Yeah, right. And she did exactly that. She was so in love with him. Like... I know. I I know. I just hate it. It's kind of like those girls that are like, you know what? I'm so in love with you to, you know, you need to further your career and move to a different state and I'll come with you. I feel like that's different, though, than what's going on here. But a that little, sucks. Yeah. So I, the reason I agree with you is because she called it being exiled to Texas. Yeah. So she would go on to abandon the fashion world and flying and adopt a new life as Ann Taylor. Texas housewife. Texas housewife. So, quote, I had already decided that my talent as a, as a designer had its limits. I plucked my courage and asked the top people in New York exactly how long they thought I could last. Five years, they said, but I figured it would probably be more like three. I couldn't see that, I couldn't see that all that would bring me a great deal of happiness. So, like, she... 
she the people asked, around like, her yeah, are telling like, her you're only going to last five years. You'll be back. Yeah, you're not a... And she's like, I'm only going to last three. Oh, oh, I, th- I thought you were saying that uh, she would only last in the fashion industry for five no, years. No, they're saying like... You'll only last in you'll Texas. You'll only last being away from the fashion industry. I see, I see. I'm like, oh man, that's harsh. Right. Being like, well, you were you were only going to be good for five years total, so you might as well go and be a Texas no, housewife. No, they were it's saying the like, you'll be back in five years, yeah. yeah. However, being the wife of Moose did bring her a lot of happiness. It brought her like a completely different lifestyle, but she really, really enjoyed it. So this is a really long quote, but it really, I thought, summed up her feelings. Yeah. So she says, quote, I went on to lead a fascinating life with Moose, traveling all over the world and meeting dozens of remarkable personalities. Okay, I guess that was a short quote because the rest of it <laughs> isn't a quote. <laughs> I thought the whole paragraph was a quote. <laughs> um, so she would go on to meet people such as British nobility, singers, authors, writer, or authors and writers are the same thing, but like basically all the high end people because he's a Texas oil magnet. So he's yeah. quite wealthy, you know? Um, and by all accounts, Moose spared no expense on his unconventional bride treating her as though she was a princess. So he wasn't like being an asshole to her. Like, no, she's like, you are, he's like, you are the center of my world, but you still have to be a housewife. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think I feel comfortable saying he's not an asshole, but he didn't, he didn't treat her like he wasn't abusive. He wasn't yeah, like a he, drunk. He was controlling, but he was not. Right. Yeah. Okay. She would go on to bear him four children. So she's up to six total. Um, and what's cute is to be closer to the mountains, which she adored. In 1951, Moose relocated them to Denver to a sprawling manor on 160 acres with stables and horses and hounds for fox hunts. Um, And he made it so that inside were just closets upon closets upon closets so that she could just have all the clothes she fucking wanted. Okay, I'm... uh... I'm starting to see myself also willing to make compromises yeah, right? for a moose in my life. <laughs> um, so she, even though she was no longer a designer of clothes, she became a major collector, ultimately amassing about 4,500 pieces. That's 4,500 pieces of clothing. Good God. Um, and she, I mean, and she got them from all over the world, like Balenciaga, like all the famous names. She had them in her closet she not only had like that designer stuff, but she had dozens of pairs of English riding boots, helmets, formal jackets, informal jackets, capes, skirts, trousers, boots, boots just for shooting. Oh my God. I know she's not going to the grocery store, but I feel like I would run out of places to wear outfits. Like I literally get dressed up to record with oh, yeah. you because I have so few places to dress up and I know, go. She's, she looks all cute and I'm over here in sweatpants and a t-shirt. I didn't even put a bra on. <laughs> We're in your house. It's it's a little different, but like this is me going out <laughs> and socializing. Right? So, so she had these boots for shooting and she actually had a matching pair of 20 gauge shotguns to go with her boots. Oh, my God, that is how you right. coordinate an accessory. So, and those were her like more everyday things. She she also had an elaborate set of costumes specifically for skiing, a lot of which happened to be military hats and belts and stuff like that. Basically anything that caught her fancy, she had. Oh my God, I love it. Um, And finally in 1963, Moose completed their 160 acre compound. <laughs> With the ski chalet that she, he had promised her in the beginning. so And he built it up in the mountains. And so she finally had her own little, like, ski house. Aww. So he fulfilled his promise. It's her, uh, it's her 
elaborate, luxurious she shed. Right. And so he, he actually, this wasn't on their 160 acres. He bought the, the, this is how it says it. The choicest quadruple lot in Vale. <laughs> this is some vale. choice lot. Okay. I'm telling you choice is hell. Vale is in Colorado, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Vale, but this was Vale before it was popular. They made it cool. Yeah, actually. <laughs> so she, she, he bought the route at the, the foot of Bear Tree Run, which I'm sure people who ski in Vail know what that means, but I have no idea. Um, and they would winter there for more than 40 years. Like they, that's where they would go. That was their winter house because he, he was like, you know, you love to ski. And when she moved to Texas, obviously she had to give that up. And he's like, no, like I promised you a ski place. It's it's funny because you said wintered there for forty years. I was imagining like they just lived there for another forty they years. They just hibernated and was, together, and it was always winter. <laughs> I'm like, that's that's not what that means. I'm I'm so poor. Like I don't understand what wintering means. I know, right? If so anything, we're, we're we have snowbirds. Yeah, I was like, we're used to we're used to the opposite. Yeah. Um, she would go on to employ a ski instructor and neighbor named Ulf Edborg. So I'm assuming he was Scandinavian. Whoop whoop. Um. And she would go out and ski most mornings and afternoons. And she skied in the, um, basically what is called the old school European style, which is where your feet are like clamped together. Now they're not actually clamped, but you keep your feet together and you do like the very slow, like curviness. Yeah. You serpentine. It's a lot more graceful. Serpentine babu. Right. And she would turn heads, not just because of her looks, but because she almost often, she Often wore a yellow big bird coat. It's that is the perfect that, way to describe it. Because Emily always puts at least one picture of the ladies up, and that's the one I'm going to tell her to use. Yeah. Well, there's also three adorable little white Scotties in I it, know. too. And they're so cute. They look like the little Caesars dogs. Right. So she would wear this big yellow coat with usually like wool stockings that usually had like racing stripes, sometimes a pink tutu. Oh my God. Um, and she would sometimes wear a sporan, which is like the horsehair purse that they wear with kilts. Oh yeah. I see a picture of her with that. Yep. Yeah. So I almost bought one of those in Scotland. And then she wore a British Hussars plumed Bisbee helmet um, that had actually been worn at the battle of Balaclava or Baklava. I think it, I think it's balaclava. Balaclava, yeah. Balaclava is a food and it's delicious. Balaclavas but are like, also so those the, like ski masks. Yeah, but. so it was an authentic like battle hat that she would wear. I I love her. I love her she so much. She is super much. extra and I just want to be her best friend. Oh my God. He, you know, here's the other thing. How smart is it to wear a giant yellow coat? Because first of all, everyone knows who you are. And then if you get lost or hurt or something, they're going to be able to find you in two seconds. Exactly. You're like a mustard stain on yeah, that white mountain. <laughs> um, so Bob Dorf, who would later become like a pretty notable ski instructor, remembers the first day he met Anne. Um, he had been asked by her to fill in for um, Edborg um, at Vale because he was like sick and Anne was like, uh, I want a ski lesson. Um, and this is what this is what he remembers. Quote, she was dressed as a soldier in some sort of black and red uniform. I didn't give it a second thought, though. She was such a delightful, classy lady. I think there's a picture of that, too. Delightful, classy lady. Right. Um, so she's in this cat town. That doesn't really, it's not really out there yet. So she used her iconic style and her connections in New York. Again, all these magazine connections and stuff she has. And she really put Vale on the map. She leveraged her influence with not only um, 
Oh my God. What was it called? Harper Bazaar. Thank you. Harper's Bazaar. But she knew the current editor of Vogue and she knew a lot of celebrity photographers and like all of this stuff. And basically she put Vail in the national spotlight. In January of 1965, so now we're in 65, Life Magazine published a photo essay by Tony Frisell, who's like, was like one of the big names in photography at the time. And it was celebrating Ann Taylor's unconventional fashion sense. The title of the article was, quote, An Inventive Skier's Worldly Wardrobe. It included a full-page photographs of her on the slopes of Vail Mountain wearing the dress uniform of a Greek mountain infantryman and an Arabian Gutra headscarf captioned, quote, Mrs. Vernon practically, sorry, Mrs. Vernon Taylor of Denver is a dedicated skier and world traveler with an eye for improbable but practical ski clothes. She saw this headgear in Saudi Arabia and figured that since it has protected against the blowing sand for centuries, it would provide fine protection against wind and blowing snow. And it's so funny because, like, her wearing the military gear, like, she she was recruited by the military right. to teach pilots during war times. And then she seems to have a genuine appreciation for these other pieces for and, like, using them practically. So, at first, I'm like, is she just, like, a poser? But well, I like, feel like, like she like, has... Oh, is she, like, culturally misappropriating stuff? But no, like, she's, like, legitimately, like, this is a fantastic thing you made. Yeah, I like I feel like she has a genuine appreciation for it and she's using it in a practical way versus just look at me. But she's definitely also look at me because you don't dress like that without being look at me. I didn't leave it in, but there was a quote by like someone else like because the interview I read from her was like an interview within an interview. It was a real weird paper. And the person was like, I'm, she, she's like, I never saw her wear the same outfit twice. And I'm like, oh, oh I bet Except not. for the big bird coat. She was yeah. like, but it's a coat. Um, so this notoriety she had in print helped lure the right people, sexy finger quotes, <laughs> uh, to Vail. And then once, you know, the right people were in town, she would, she began throwing a lot of dinner parties, not just for Moose's business associates, which she'd kind of already been, you know, having over. Cause when you're like a magnate of any kind that's kind of just part of the deal well and i'm that's kind of the role he wanted her to play exactly the, the wife the entertainer the you know maiden of the home right exactly but now she was also hosting parties for movie stars like basically all the people i mentioned before movie stars authors budding politicians writers and she would always make sure to round but she would always make sure to round up the guest list um and populate her 12 seat dinners so she like that was her thing it was only 12 people with locals oh so like maybe she'd have like six or eight business people but then she'd have like two or three couples of locals too like she was always like no like let's really like mix this up and make this like one big happy family yeah well and especially if these um Big shots are going to come to this town. She's become a part of this town. Exactly. It's like, don't be a tourist. Be a part of it. And one of her favorite locals to invite was Patsy Manley Smith and her husband, Bill, both of whom had actually known Ann Taylor back when she was Ann Cook living in Stowe. Oh, wow. So that's kind of neat. Um, so whenever Kate guests came to town, she'd phone her, the ski instructor that had been her temporary one, Bob Dorf, because he was running a ski school. And she would sign them up for lessons, charging, charging her running account with him. At the end of the season, 
Bob would show up, present her with what he would call the final reckoning. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> and she would always kind of like be like, oh, God. You know, like she was kind of not necessarily panic, but like be like, oh, it, it's like it's like when you don't check your bank account exactly. for a week and you're, and you're like, like, oh, God, is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? Is it going to be good or is it going to be yeah. bad? So this is a quote from Bob, quote, I'd show her the bill and she would say, oh, Bob, that's too much. I would point to an entry and say, so-and-so skied that day all day with me. And she'd say, oh, I know they weren't there all day. Then I would tear the thing down $3,000 and say, Anne, if that's okay with you, that's okay with me. However, she is haggling yeah, on this extravagant she ski account. She would. However, Bob Dorf would then drive to Denver and submit the original bill to her husband because that's who was actually paying for this. Okay, so he goes to her and she's like, can we take that down a little bit? Because I'm like, sure. Yeah, sure. And then he'd charge them the so, full amount anyway. But he was like a good family friend because this is, here's another quote from him, but about the husband. So I would be escorted into this absolutely incredible office with wood on the walls from some ancient ship and Moose would be sitting there. He knew I took meticulous notes and he would ask, okay, Bob, how much was it this year? What's the damage? And I'd say it was $5,200 and he would call his secretary and say, please write the Vale Ski School a check for $5,200. He was such a wonderful man and she was pleasantly forceful and always got her way. She was almost British in her demeanor, more aloof and erudite. I love that she, this almost seems like a playful teasing yeah like she's not actually screwing him out of money it seems like almost more of a formality though like because like she's not paying for it so exactly. like he's just more like yeah and whatever you want and yeah. then he just goes to the husband and was like yeah this is the actual amount oh my god that's hilarious so notice how she called her like british and ann taylor really almost was like royalty in veil to and I, like she was actually called the Grand Dame of Vale. Oh, that is a good one. And it's grand with an E. Ooh, very yeah. fancy. Um, tacking E's on because we got time. Several of her friends actually admit that they were like terrified, like because she had this reputation. And so a lot of people were like really nervous when they would be introduced to her because they're like, oh God, like. But she was such a, like a classy lady and she was very, very welcoming, even if she was kind of aloof. Yeah. And perhaps nobody understood Ann Taylor better than a woman that would become her best friend named Sheikha Graham Sh- Grand Shammer. Um, she had attended one of um, Ann's parties in about 1963 and from then on would visit Ann almost daily and become her confidant. As a token of her friendship and in her later life, Ann would actually go on to gift Sheikha, who she considered her young protege, that Mongolian wool cloak that the big yellow bird and she would actually she took calling Sheikha as my yellow bird oh so that's cute so Sheikha would say quote she maybe didn't have the warmth that's one thing she was missing but behind the doors in private her husband meant everything to her more than her kids more than her friends the relationship between them was truly love I think she had no room for anyone else sometimes she was like a mother to me but she was not motherly at all. I'm I'm getting a pretty good picture of who she is. She's not the she's not like, oh right. honey, let me give you a hug. But she she's a little more aloof. But you can feel she's that caring, she cares. Right? Yes. Yeah. She would continue by saying she was always disciplined, always correct, 
and you had to be correct with her. So I'm assuming by that they mean like grammar and like speaking properly. Yeah, she wasn't afraid to tell you when you were wrong. Right. If you misbehaved at one of her parties, you weren't invited anymore. She was very unique and I admire her tremendously. I kind of admire that she set those boundaries. She yeah. kind of, it, It's like that, uh, that, saying, that saying, you teach people how to treat you. And she's like, I'm going to teach all y'all how to behave exactly. around me. <laughs> So for all her parties and all her friends, including Sheikah, no one was ever allowed in her closets. Anne viewed this as her sanctuary, her like last refuge. And it, it would remain that way until she died. No one was allowed in her closets. Like this was her space. It kind of makes sense because she's such a public figure and she's... Even though she's very independent in a lot of ways, she's kind of at everyone's disposal because she has to entertain for her husband. She's schmoozing and, you know, pursuing business opportunities. And this is the one place where she can just be herself, be alone and sit with her collection. Well, and I envision it being like the kind of closets that have like a bench in the middle or something like, so she can like, you know, it's not just like you're standing awkwardly in a closet. (laughs) Like I do sometimes. No, I'm imagining it's like a straight up room. Like there's a, there's a chaise lounge and there's a wet bar. Very fancy. (laughs) Um, Ann Taylor would, would ski and entertain at Vail well into her ninth decade. Oh my God. She was in her nineties. When life, and probably far too many cigarettes, eventually caught up with her. She had a lot of, um, in her later life, she had a lot of hard time breathing, especially in high altitude. So unfortunately, in 2005, she emptied her chalet, locked the front door, and never went back. Oh, that must have been so hard. Oh, God, I can't imagine. Um, She would move back, she would, they would move back to Denver, and as weeks turned to months, her health slowly deteriorated. Um... And the spark that made her so special would burn out. As happens with all of us, like, we all die. It happens. We all get old. Exactly. On October 28th, 2007, I think I think she was 97 years old. Like, she she didn't live a short life. She was 97 years old. I was going to say, my lady lived to be 98. Yours is 97. And they died a year apart. Exactly. So... She died when she was 97 peacefully at home with her husband. Her husband went on to live. I actually didn't look it up, but he lived past her. Yeah. Um, and so the 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 interview that I read was actually with Sheikah. So then like it was the interview with Sheikah. And then there was like an interview with Anne within that. Inter- it was weird. Yeah. But she like went on to talk. Sheikah went on to talk about how like she still visits Moose or she still visited. He's dead now. But she would go visit Moose like. Quite often still, and um, by that time, Moose was going, like, senile, and he'd forget mm. stuff, and he'd be like, oh, I'm sure Anne will come out of the bedroom soon. Oh, no. And this she's is, like, some like, notebook She's sadness. just like, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, like. I know. That's so sad. But at the same time, you know, maybe it's not as sad as we think, because he, if he didn't remember, like, I don't I, know. It's, yeah. it's, it's one of those things that you he's never not, know. He's not missing her. Exactly. Oh, that's still, like, that breaks but, like, my heart. It's really cute, because, like, you know, he's in his 90s, too, and he's still, like, clearly super in love with her. Oh. So, like, clearly, even though he might have been a little bit controlling, like, clearly, very obviously, like, they loved each other. Yeah. So, legacy. In 2008... As I said, um, so it was actually Moose that gifted her collection to, like, what they considered the hot couture of her day. Mm-hmm. Um, and her, all of her evening wear to the Phoenix Art Museum. 
to put on display. And then in 2013, part of that collection went to the Georgia Museum of Art, that, and they staged an expedition of over 200 of those pieces. Exposition? Expedition. I bet going through all of those clothes is a bit of an expedition. <laughs> yeah, ex- exhibition. Going through her fucking closets was an expedition. It was a fucking adventure, man. People, people have their headlamps on. They've got a rope to find their way out. They also have out. a glass of wine, though, because you got to be classy. Yeah, you got to be classy. Pinkies up, people. Remember, pinkies up, okay? <laughs> Can you imagine going through all of 4, those clothes? 4,500 pieces, and you only... I mean, you're only getting 500 or 200 of them to, like, take with you. Like oh. Legend says there's still someone trapped in those closets. And if you're quiet on a windy day, you can hear them yelling, Cashmere. Yeah. What is it like? <laughs> the family tale. Oh, according to family according legend. According to family legend. Yeah, I went to a, I don't think we the, talked about it on this podcast. There's still a pod- ghost in the closet. I don't think we talked about it on this podcast. No, we but- did. We did. No, we talked around Kina's. Oh, did we? Yeah, I, I went to a farm tour and unfortunately... Go, go watch uh, Historical AF. Yeah, I don't think the episode's out quite yet. We'll get there. You know when it's out. Yeah. Kina um, got a new job. But I went on a historic farm tour and unfortunately they did, the family who owned the farm didn't write a lot of stuff down. So the presenter's catchphrase was, according to family legend or according Which to family lore. So that that's like what I'm going to say now, like... Instead of Hursery Headcan, according to legend. Right. Um, although Hursery Headcan is still fantastic. Oh, yes. Um, so this exhibition um, at both places included pieces from numerous designers. As I mentioned, like she would collect from all over, including like Balenciaga and like all the big names of fashion at the time. Um, it also included some of her own ski wear designs because she, obviously she was a designer at some point. And um, as well as accessories by people like Louis Vuitton and Gucci and like Henry Maxwell and all the big names, basically. And I mean, clearly she was an inspiration to both women in fashion, in business, in flight, like in all of these things, right? (laughs) Like she went to Wimbledon. She was a backup on the American Olympic team, even though she never got to compete, like so clearly that is her legacy. Like she was just this badass woman that was like, you can do anything you put your mind to. Like, yes, granted, at least for like the tennis and the flying and stuff. Yes, she was born into wealth. That definitely helped. But like the commercial aviator license she got and when she went to teach our pilots, that was her being resourceful and like doing shit on her own. I, I was going to say that was the most impressive part to me because even though I want to discount her achievements, but she definitely had a lot of privilege growing up in a wealthy family and had a yeah. lot of opportunities afforded to her. But the second that all goes away and she doesn't crumble and she kind of starts doing it first, that's when right. I'm like, I know who she is now. Right. She, I, she is- literally was like, okay, I have me and my kids to take care of. What can I do? You exactly. Know, she, whereas a lot of times you'll see those li- like, they they act they start acting like a damsel in distress where they're like oh I have no money what can I do like, or they I have need to, to I need to find a sugar daddy or yeah you know or they would rely on their family whereas she was like my family is fucking useless <laughs> you know she's like yep. my dad my dad is a drug addict and my grandpa can't remember shit like my family is useless and yeah. my ex husband is an asshole. That is that is so wild. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Like what a what a driven person. And even though she did marry a very wealthy person, it wasn't because she had to. It's because she no, wanted she to. She loved him. Yeah, clearly. It's because she stalked him in another country. 
<laughs> I love that very much because I, I was watching a show recently that it was there was like a, a guy and a girl and the girl was very much pursuing the guy. Mm-hmm. And then like to, like when the guy was finally like, fine, I'll get together with you. He was like, you have to let me be the cheetah. And I was like. And so, like, when I when I was writing these notes, I was like, oh, my God, she's totally the cheetah. She is the cheetah. But, like, clearly Moose didn't care. I mean, his name is Moose. Yeah. Man, normally that's a deal breaker, but he did seem to really love her and well, try and to make her he, happy. Exactly. Like, I love that he was like, okay, we'll move to Denver so you can start skiing again. Like, I will build you that ski chalet that I told you. I would. Like, you know, like, yeah, he was kind of demanding because he wanted a housewife. But at the same time, he was still like... I'm going to take care of you. You're not going to be one of those wives that you're at home and I'm just out fucking around doing whatever the fuck I want. Like, no, you are still my princess. Yeah. I just want you to be at home with me. Yeah. Uh, that was, that's hopefully I, that was enough of an upper for you. Emily. No, definitely. Uh, sorry. Holocaust. What? <laughs> no. Uh, no, hopefully that was, that was really a good interesting. balance. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, uh, you'll you'll be you'll smile when you see the big bird coat. You uh you did an initial nosedive, and then we brought you right back up to the point where you might actually have the bends. <laughs> Please find a bathroom. What? Don't you like either throw up or shit when you have the bends? I thought you just died because it's like you get air bubbles in your blood. It's terrible. The bends. Like, I don't think you always die. Well, you can. Looking yeah, up? I guess I I was wrong. Okay. See, I thought you were confusing the bends with the runs. I kind of was actually. <laughs> yeah, the most common signs and symptoms of the bends include joint pain, fatigue, lower back pain, paralysis, and numbness of the legs. Although it can be, there also can be confusion, vomiting, ringing in the ears, head and neck pain, or loss of consciousness. Oh God! So you don't always die when you get it, but if a lo- you a lot of times people don't know what it is. Yeah. So, like, especially when it first came out, like, when people were building, like, the Brooklyn Bridge and stuff, I think it was, or maybe it was the the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, like, a lot of the divers that were doing, like, the pylons died because they didn't know what the fuck it oh, was. Oh, God. Um, But nowadays, if you're there, like, oh, you're feeling these symptoms and you were scuba diving, yeah, you probably have the bends well, and, and, and then they can help you. Well, well, and yeah. you're taught how to ascend safely, too, because it's it's not from the ascension itself. It's ascending too quickly where your body yep. can't properly acclimate. Because it's, de- it's technically known as, like, decompression sickness. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I was thinking of the runs. Okay. I, I mean, it kind of makes sense because uh, when you have diarrhea, you're, like, bent over that toilet. You're yeah. like, oh, God. And, you know, the runs, like, you ran too you far ran to, to the, the bathroom. <laughs> no, you ran to the surface yeah, too quickly. Oh, that's funny. Wow, didn't think we'd talk about scuba sickness right, in this on that episode. Note, Emily, what are you thankful for? Oh, uh, so you know how last week I had, like, 80 things I was just running off? Yep. Uh, and now you have nothing? I used it all up. This week has been rough because the VA has been jerking Jared around with his meds and just being entirely unhelpful and not fulfilling their responsibility, which is really tough. So what I am thankful for is that even though this week has been really rough, I got to go out one night with a friend of mine. We got all dolled up. We went to an event and then we went out and got drinks after. And we just got to like reconnect and feel all cute and sassy and fancy. And that was really good. And it felt sounds like a ton of fun. It felt really good to get out and kind of get, get away from 
the drama which the VA is causing in my life and to just enjoy things. I got to try this new, uh, there's a there's a whiskey and bourbon Ooh. restaurant downtown, which we need to go called? to. The old brick house. It's I, right next to Victoria. I've heard they're very good. And my, like Justin wants to go because they're Irish. Yes. And so he wants to go and see if, how their um, scotch eggs match up against whistle binkies. Uh, it, it's really good. I, we had a drink and like a, an appetizer, but mm. it was excellent. Loved it. We will go there. We'll get all dolled up. Hell yeah. But it, it was nice. Um, and it's nice to know that I have other people, like, obviously you, Kelly, but I have other people in my life to, you know, kind of connect with, you, you know? You need that. Like, yeah. I would say, I was talking to someone this weekend, or not this weekend, this week, and they were like, you know, how, like, it was one of my coworkers, and they're like, how are you doing? Like, because I hadn't talked to her in a while, and it was funny, because the only reason I talked to her, like, I like her. She's a great person, but I never think about talking to her, but I had, like, a specific thing I had to ask her, and she was like, how, you know, like... She was super nice. And this is probably also my, what I'm thankful for her and Marissa, but I'll get to Marissa in a second. But this coworker was just like, she was so nice. And she was like, I'm so proud of you for what you're doing in school. Cause she's also in school. She's significantly older than me or maybe not significantly, but she is, she's a decade or two she older than like me. She feels like a grown up. Yeah. <laughs> she could probably be my mom. Um, and she's also in school. She's trying to get her bachelor's, you know, and she's like, you know, I don't have time. I'm taking one class at a time, taking it slow. And she's like, how's your schooling going? I'm like, yeah, I'm taking four classes. And oh she's my God. like, are you okay? Right. And I'm like, no, clearly I'm not. But like, I was going to take three because so there's two different licensures in Minnesota that you can get. There's LPCC, which is like licensed practical clinical counselor. And then there's like licensed practical counselor. I, that might not be right. Um, but like, so it's LPC or LPCC and I'm going for my LPCC because if one, if Minnesota ever changes their licensure, that's probably what they would change it to. Or two, if I ever move out of state, most states have LPCC instead. Okay. Plus it's cheaper to go now while I'm still a student and get those extra credits versus coming back later as a non-student to get those credits. Okay. Price like maybe not doubles, but it's close. It's nuts. So I'm taking four classes because three are what I need for LPCC. And then the technical elective that I'm taking is just a type of counseling I'm really interested in. So I was telling her I was taking four classes and she's like, I'm so proud of you. And I'm like, shut up. I'm really proud of you, you know, too. Like it's just, you know, like it's one thing for me to be like, oh, I'm doing this. But, it, you know, sometimes it's nice even for for people that I don't talk to very often, but like kind of know what I'm going through. That they're, they're just like, you know, I think of you and I'm proud of you. And that was like the same thing with Marissa that she'd like, I had posted on Patreon that I'm like, I'm sorry, I haven't gotten the video up. Like classes started this week. You know, my life's kind of crazy. I'm really sorry. Like I'll get it up by the end of the weekend. My bad. And Marissa messaged me and was basically just like, Hey, you know, school life work. I'm sure your life's crazy right now. She's like, but I adore you and I appreciate everything you do. And I was like, not crying you're crying for anyone that doesn't know marissa is one of our listeners and one of our patrons and she is like she's very involved she's very supportive and uh and we got her from another podcast that we were on and so like i love all of you but like also like i'm like 
oh, like she's a hardcore dedicated fan of this other podcast and she's our fan. Like, yay. And honestly, the other podcast is so good where I'm like, so oh, and better. you think we're also we're supporting. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. That's, that's my feeling too. I'm like, oh my God, that other podcast is so much better. But like, then again, we've had that podcast host be like, you guys are so professional. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. It's but yeah, a lot of imposter syndrome. So that's, that's where I'm at. And that's what I'm thankful. I'm thankful for, I don't know, other people caring and being there for me I guess is kind of the sum up well and it's nice to get that validation because I feel like a lot of us fall in this trap when we feel proud of ourselves we feel like we're kind of tricking ourselves like well I'm just trying not to feel like crap so I'm justifying you know my moderate level of success or what I'm taking on but it's nice when people outside of you recognize that and they're like no you're doing the damn thing right. and that's amazing. And, and I th- also I think it's that I care. plus imposter syndrome, you know, exactly like, where I'm just like, Oh God, should I like, yeah, I'm doing okay, but should I really be here? Like, I feel like other people are so much more put together and then people are like, no, you're doing great. You like, are. I appreciate you. No, I can't imagine going back to school for anything. Like I, I enjoy learning. I hate school though, which is why we have a podcast. Gra- I will say grad school's different. Yeah. But I really wish we would have been back in person this semester. And I'm really sad that they decided not to. I get it. Mm -hmm. Like I do. I get it. But I'm still really sad about it. It it doesn't mean you can't be disappointed. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to another like oddly sentimental episode of (laughs) Whiny About Her Story. Probably one of our longer episodes. (laughs) Yeah, this is the longest one we've done in a while because both of our stories are pretty sizable. It's just uh, evening out, what was it, like two weeks ago episode where it was super short. Yes, yes. Um, so please like us on Facebook at Whining About Her Street, Instagram at WAHpod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com and our email is whiningaboutherstory.com where we would love to hear from you. We're at gmail.com. At gmail. What did I just say? <laughs> you just repeated our website. Okay. <laughs> so whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. I've had a, I've had like half this bottle because yeah. I was just like, I want more wine. It's really good. If I wasn't driving, I would have uh, had you more. just hang out here. Anyways, um. We also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whining about herstory. We're going to have our new merch store up and running, I'm hoping, by Monday. I have also consulted with an independent woman designer on some patron exclusive merch. Yeah. So, so our funerary cult is going to get some access to some special swag. So you could sign up for as little as $1. Watch our V to A's. You know, we're going to have a special question and answer session with them. You know, we do different things. We do history happenings, which if you look back in our catalog, we did release one of them for general consumption. But we do, we have quite a few more and we'll have one coming out in a week or two as well. Yep. Yep. So those are uh bonus episodes that just talk about historical events or situations or organizations just everything around hit history only for the cult though only for the funerary cult for our lovely funerarians and funeristas love you also please raise five stars wherever you listen is the easiest and freest way to support the podcast helps other people find us and as always i'm emily i'm kelly and have an empowered day lovelies bye